just paying people every month makes a big difference mm. because every single month they get a deposit and they think about us. Welcome to Funds That Won, where we dive into some of the world's most renowned investment funds. We'll interview investment managers across the alternative landscape and learn how they built their million and even billion dollar asset management empires. We'll explore teams, structures, strategies, and best practices in launching and running alternative investment funds. Hey guys, today I had a conversation with Rob Fuller, founder of ROI Property. This guy has you know hundreds of millions under management, wealth of knowledge, just uh, all out fascinating conversation. We got into real estate development, how he built his teams, how he structured you know some of the things in his docs, uh, you know how he works with LPs, and you know kind of his, some of his fundraising strategies. I think you guys are really going to love this conversation. Your initial strategy yeah. was just fix and flip. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And did you subcontract that out that work? Did you do it yourself? So we, we bought all over the country that year in 2009, 2008, 2009. I think we bought in uh, 13 houses in um, multiple states. We bought a couple in Chicago, a couple in Detroit, a couple in Atlanta, um, one or two in Tennessee. So we would sub it out. We were living in California at the time. Yeah. I mean, some of those houses we bought for $2,000, right? It seems crazy. The taxes every year in Detroit were more than what we paid for the houses. Whoa. So, but we had great renters. We had like a teaching assistant was renting one of them. And a church rented the other. Would you one. manage the property? Uh, no, I had a property manager property manage. that did it as well. Um, so the rents were, you know, five, 600 bucks a month, 700 bucks yeah. a month in expensive homes, but we didn't pay a lot for them. Mm -hmm. I think the 13 houses, that we bought in 2009 cost us less than a hundred thousand dollars. Whoa. Yeah. Different day and age. That is crazy. Yeah. So they were inexpensive. I mean, I think one of them we bought in, or no, uh, yeah, Chicago paid like eight grand for it. When we sold it five years later, we sold it for about 75. Yeah. Um, again, that's still not a lot in today's day and age, but I mean, we probably a couple times more than that in value today, maybe three. So when do you start leveraging and, you know, did you just reach, you know, inherent capacity limits and you said, we got to start raising money from other people or how did you start going into the business of, you know, managing OPM? Um, yeah, I think it, it was a combination of you find good deals and you think, wow, I don't want to let that one pass us up. Um, and also if you have, we had bandwidth, so some of it was just the ability to go out and do more, mm -hmm. but didn't have enough of our own cash to do it. So, um, I think it's it's kind of all of the above you know when you, you think okay there's opportunities and and there's um, assets to, to buy and and um, and then we also had people approaching us after a little while saying hey you know you're doing this can I put some money in that kind of thing yeah well paint me a picture of what your firm looks like today just what eight years later um, you know I know you've got multiple funds that you're managing multiple products yeah. uh, you know just give me the full uh, okay you know sure. high level yeah, so we've we've closed out a few funds. We have a couple going right now, um, one that we're just launching. But essentially, I've got like 25 employees here in Orem, Utah, which is just north of Provo, by UVU and BYU. Um, right now, we have about 17 projects. Projects range smallest ones 26 homes, the largest one is several thousand lots. Um, those many of those lots will wind up selling to builders. Mm -hmm. Some of them we'll build on ourselves. Um, wide range of markets that we're in. Um, we've got projects in 
Texas, Alabama, Huntsville specifically, uh, multiple markets in Georgia. And uh, those projects are specifically, most of them are specifically build to rent type mm -hmm. projects where we build the community and either hold on to the entire community as rentals, kind of like a horizontal multifamily, sometimes yeah. it's classified as, or uh, we'll sell the entire community to somebody else. Okay. Once it's stabilized or pre-stabilization? Sometimes it's CO, so it's certificate of occupancy. As soon as the buildings uh, are done, some funds will take them, they'll lease them up. So it, it, there's a there's a wide range of, of different exit strategies. Sometimes you can just literally sell the homes one by one by one. Mm -hmm. um, we, we try to get as be as versatile as possible. It's single family homes, uh, so it's not uh, quite as niche as multifamily. And I mean, build a rent is a niche, but it has multiple exits because they are single family homes. You can sell them individually or as groups or hold on to them. And, there's a number of different things you can do with it. And, and what's your preferred exit strategy out of all this? Love to hold on to them. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that only works because you know, we raise fund money, so we have to return the money plus profit, right? And uh, we, we tend to pay a flat fee, so an interest. And part of the reason we do that for simplicity's sake, Yeah. right? We'll do a, sometimes a PREF or a, a, treat it like a debt fund and just do a flat interest rate. But we do that so going in, people know exactly what they're getting when they get out, right? Yeah. And... Um, so do you have like different share classes then, or do you just not have, that one? Yeah, yeah. So the most recent one is just a flat twelve percent, one percent per month. So cool. And have you ever looked at doing like continuation funds if you want to hold on to those assets in perpetuity? Or um, generally, when we do it, we'll we'll exit the asset, and because we've built in so much equity through our process or of of annexing, rezoning, entitling land, building it, all of that, um, we usually have enough equity in the deal to yeah. be able to hold on to it without. Uh, having to do a continuation fund, but we we've talked about it. Um, haven't needed to do it. Yeah. Right now. So total AUM today uh, of other people's cash. Yeah. Or total yeah. Well, total assets. A, so equity under in, management. I was gonna say because assets under management. In, in real estate, we have you know hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate, right? But as far as other people's money that we have, um, probably about fifty million dollars. Cool. Um, that's awesome. And you're have you primarily you know done the same thing across your different products your four funds uh have you branched into different product sets are you <clears throat> going to branch into different product sets you know what is what do things look like there so the first few that we did were fix and flip and and kind of we've fixed them to either flip them to other people as homeowners or to sell as rentals so we did that early on um for the last well i mean we've Kind of there was a break in time where we didn't do any funds for a while because of what we were doing. We were able to use institutional debt, oh, um, which we it has its pros and cons. Yeah, right. There are advantages to having a fund. Well, why don't you tell the listeners what are some of the pros? To work with an institutional yeah. group, one big check. Right, it's not lots of little relationships, which relationships are great. But I'm not an extremely extroverted person, right? So. I like being able to have a, a relationship with a banker who, you know, whether it's a debt fund and hedge fund, family office, whoever that'll write you a big check. Mm -hmm. That's, that's nice because you don't have as many relationships to continue fostering. And if I'm, I consider myself a real estate developer and that's a full-time thing, but we raising money is also a full-time thing, right? And having those relationships and fostering those and growing those. And, and so it's easy when you have an institutional group who can write checks to, to do that. I will say that the last couple of years that's been slowing down, which is one of the reasons I started moving back towards opening 
a fund and, and, and then a second one. And, and so this is our fifth one. Um, but the, the advantages there is that you're not beholden to groups that are then beholden to Wall Street who've said, right. we're not going to fund anything else, right? Yeah. We're stopping. And bankers will still call me, the loan originators, but they'll, you know, to chat and, hey, what, what's going on? And, and all the while knowing that they're not going to be writing any loans because they can't. That, you know, banks or debt funds, for the most part, are stalled. Yeah. While they're, with all the rate changes and bank uncertainty. And so many of them have paused, but loan originators are oftentimes still making and keeping and fostering relationships because they want to be able to have those relationships for when they do eventually open up their own ability to lend again. So from my perspective, raising money gives us a little more control of our own destiny Yeah, to, to say it that way. So. Well, I often tell people, you know, there as much as, you know, investors like diversification in their assets and in their investments, uh, asset managers, uh, investment managers need to have diversification in their LPs, mm -hmm. right? Uh, a good mix of, you know, institutional grade LPs and your high net worths and your family offices, uh, just because their, you know, time periods are different, their mm -hmm. time to allocation and, and uh, makes for a more robust, you know, portfolio. So I was cutting, I cut you off a little bit as you were talking about your product sets. Uh, so where, you know, where do you see those going? Do you plan on just doing your vanilla, you know, development for the next decade? Or are you trying to get into other asset classes? Or how do you think about, you know, as you're building your business of funds and asset management, you know, what is, what does the roadmap look like? I think we'll probably stick with vanilla. Yeah. Right? It's just, we know it. Um, if we do venture into other things, generally it's with our own cash, not with investor capital. We won't usually go into that and bring investors in right away if we have things that we do. Generally, we know build the rent, we know that space, we know um, residential housing and feel really comfortable doing that and raising money to that end. Yeah. And then if we have other things that we put cash into, I'm not saying we wouldn't bring people to it later, but we certainly, right now, we, we know what we're doing with the, the housing residential markets and so we can go and when we do it, we'll oftentimes buy land and exit into cities or municipalities that are local, um, rezone it, entitle it. Even, I would say frequently, I'll say that, we just use our own money for that part of it as well. Mm -hmm. And that part is um, where you create a lot of value and you give your the, the value of the land a, a huge lift um, because you're increasing the um, kind of high, you're putting the land in closer to its highest and best use, right? So if it's agricultural land and we're making it residential land, that value of that land jumps up substantially. Maybe it's, you know, depending on who you're asking, maybe if you're asking the ranchers, they're like, it's not the best use. We'd rather graze our cattle, but right. um, you make it worth more as you rezone it and title it. That that part it also, is also typically more risky because yeah. you don't, it's not a, slam dunk. Not everything gets entitled, not everything gets annexed. Um, but we'll do that usually even by having the sellers carry back. We'll make an offer, say we'll buy this in two years or um, when we get permits to move land and, and title it and all that. So you typically take down the land with your own cash then and wait to bring in investor dollars for the actual construction yeah. loans. Um, mm -hmm. So then do you then you then get to participate on the step up in basis in the land? So or? because we do a debt fund, generally this is also part of the reason we do debt funds because yeah. there's no need for that. Yeah. The hard part is when you do equity and you're bringing people in as an LP 
equity position, right? You've got to go through that process of reappraising the land and making a justification for why the land is worth. I bought it for a million and I did all this work and now it's worth two million. Right. Right. And there'll be some real costs in that additional lift. But when you do a debt, I can say, well, it's, it's worth two million now. You know, but we, we have a hard million plus maybe another hundred or whatever in it. So we've got a hard 1.1 in it. But a lot of times we'll even wait to close on the land with this with the, the seller until we've gotten those permits in place. So a lot of times we don't have any cash in the deal other than some earnest money and, and soft costs for annexation, rezoning and entitlement. Uh, and so we close, you know, when we have an actual permit in hand kind of situation yeah. to do work. But we don't that way we don't have to get in a, you know, speculative discussion about what the land is worth because you only really know what it's worth when you sell it right you can get an appraisal but you know if there's ever really an issue people go well the appraisal was favored in your direction you know so it's easier that's one of the reasons i like debt bonds it's easier just to say if you're going to get this percentage of return it makes sense for some people it doesn't make sense for everyone and what i found is there's enough people that it makes sense for that we get a pretty good chunk of people that invest with us as a result we lose some investors who are a little bit more willing to take on risk because they don't know where it's going to be go. They may get higher return. They may not. Um, ours is treated more like a pure debt play. Yeah. When you're selling those, you know, fixed return profile of investments, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, my former clients have just, you get a lot of pushback in terms of, well, I want to participate on the upside, mm-hmm. you know? And so how do you, how do you navigate that response? How do you communicate that with them, you know, to, to play the roles or, uh, you know, how would you respond to that? Um, I w- typically I'd say that's not my investor. Right. Yeah. D- and just say that and that's totally fine. It doesn't hurt my feelings. No is my second favorite answer. I'll tell people, you know, <laughs> Be, I'd rather get to a no fast than, than yeah. a maybe for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting because even the institutional firms who had been doing equity positions for a long time have now backed off that and they're doing debt. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's where a lot of institutional groups and individuals are feeling more secure. It's where I tend to reside anyway, because it's where I've, where I've been and, and how I like to pay people out. Um, so I have a lot more people coming my way now than, than I had in the past, but, um, I'd say, if I, if I have to tell people it's, well, it makes sense for some, it doesn't make sense for everyone. People yeah. really have to have that upside and just say, this isn't your investment. So where, you know, the risk-free rates have gone from, you know, one to five, mm-hmm. you know, I can go buy a 10-year trade or a several treasury for yeah. north of 5%. Right. Uh, you know, do you feel like you're competing more with that or are you still able to provide enough premium uh, regardless of the current rate environment? environment to still be competitive or is that yeah we're we're at 12% so yeah. it's a flat return so tends to be people really like that number yeah it seems to be you know we pay it generally we pay every month 1% per month oh like really like a construction fund yeah like as if i were going to you know debt fund run by somebody else or or a bank that would be higher interest rate you pay every single month it's construction financing for us yeah so and then what's your t- uh, typical term um, two to three years. Wow. Okay. So we, we right now we, the fund that we're raising is a three year term. I, I feel like that gives us enough time to, to kind of get through some of the, the rate environments, get some of these projects refinanced and it's pretty short done. comparably, you know, when you look at market, sure. uh, you know, have you ever thought about or entertained, you know, having a longer term sure. of, 
five to seven or even 10 and then just turning the capital multiple times or uh, is that something you don't want to mess with? So we will even in that time frame, three years, turn the capital a couple of times. Really? Because it's, yeah, the way our projects, we, we would invest this cash as we're ready to go vertical, right? And the vertical yeah. time frame for a build is not three years even, right? It's yeah. So I'll give you an example. We've got one community we break ground on on August 1st. And it took us about a year and a half, almost a uh, year, yeah, a year and a half. And then once we got the permits, that's in um, North Georgia, just north of Atlanta. Um, once we got the permits and it was getting everything mobilized for the site work to begin on August 1st, um, that particular project, we will build 174 townhomes in it. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of in pods of 10 or so but we'll start a pot of 10 every month, but they're townhomes that will finish a pot every three or four months, right? So, um, you know, within four months, we're recycling the money from the first month right. back over. So, and those units to complete the units, it's in Georgia, the cost of building there is much less. So yeah, we can recycle that just in that one community several times, yeah. um, that those funds. So um, because of that, we can, and then when they're done, when, as the units are completed and they're cash flow and they're rented, there's many more opportunities. And that particular community will put it to a bridge line, and then uh, which which will be eight or nine percent. And then when they're all done and stabilized, we'll move it to a HUD loan. Oh. And HUD is it. So in that particular community, we have a, we just testing the waters, talking with our brokers for long term agency debt. It's about five point one five percent in today's market. Um, you know, hundred percent of our cost out. So we'd be able to refinance and get all of our costs out just with the way. And again, some of that is the bankers doing their best guesstimation of where things will be at, but they took pretty aggressive stance with cap rates and things like that. Not, I guess more conservative, but they, they moved them to six and a quarter, which that community today would be trading at five and a quarter to five and a half. Yeah. So they, they're taking the steps they need to, to make sure that we're getting realistic pricing. That's great. So, yeah. So what do you think, uh, what do you think sets you apart, you know, in your firm as opposed to others or regular builders or like, what's your, what's your edge, you know, in the marketplace or, you know, how would you look at that? Most builders are built to sell. We're built to rent. So that's one thing that's, that's unique about us comparison to most of the people you'll run into on a daily basis. We tend to hire out. I mean, we've had Lennar build a community for us. Right? Yeah. Um, we'll hire general contractors to come in and build an entire community for us. These guys are experienced at building big projects, which is different from most of your your builders who are building, um, you know, even homes in a community. They'll usually have buyers lined up, and sometimes we have institutional buyers lined up. Hmm. But um, ours is more geared towards where possible. I'd love to hold everything we could. Yeah, um, and we can get takeout financing to support that. Um, and so I think, um, our ability to raise capital is one of our advantages because many people can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, the access to the relationships that we have with institutional buyers, that if we want to take that out and take it out and have people, you know, buy it from us, that's a nice exit, uh, cause it returns all our cash plus some profit. Yeah. Um, so I'd say those are a couple of our advantages that other people don't have. They can they can form those relationships, but it takes years. We've been doing this for a decade, so yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's great. I'd like to shift the conversation and talk a little bit more, more about roles in the fund. Uh, so, you know, as an emerging fund, you were probably wearing a lot of different hats, mm -hmm. you know, and a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, alluded to it earlier of, you know, being a full-time investor versus operator or investment officer. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear what, where do you feel like, what, what is your core role right now? And, uh, you know, what do you plan on, you know, how do you plan on developing that? Okay. Um, well, we have outside counsel that does most of our legal. Um, we have controller in-house that does a lot of that. And, and then an outside auditing firm as well, um, that does our tax and accounting and, and, uh, and audit. Um, in the past, we, I, I was more hands-on as, as far as getting into every single nitty gritty detail of every single project. Mm -hmm. But now I have multiple staff members that will run projects and they report back to me on a weekly basis. We have our meetings and, and go over that. And I've got somebody who does a lot more of the finances, um, like bank financing and things like that. And of course have the different, the different team members. I think the tricky part is because I love real estate development so much, um, trying to and again that's part of the reason i like those big institutional firms because they can write that big check you know mm -hmm. um i think that you do end up a little bit further away from the the hands-on as you you grow in size um and as you become a manager of people because ultimately as you grow a fund or you grow a, a, a company you end up with 100 employees some portion of your time is going to be spent doing that unless you have somebody that comes in that's really great at operations that can run that piece and so um, I try to balance that and try to balance my real estate development with the, the people managing with the fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, a fundraising team um, in office. Because now you've got like, what would you say, 25 employees? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Tell me about, you know, first of your, you know, first couple key hires, you know, as you were growing your business and growing your your firm and uh, you know, how you made those decisions of partner selection or, you know, key employee selection as, as you're building out your business. Good question. Okay. So I think part of it was I like to hire people who are smarter me smarter than me in the area that they're that they're in, right? And yeah. That seems like a, a common sense answer, but it's amazing how many people don't hire people that are smarter than them. They hire people that they can train to do everything. Uh, my thought was hire, you know, somebody who's a controller who has, you know, our controller worked at an auditing firm, worked at a builder. Um, he can bring in best practices that he's seen in the industry because he's been around it for 20 years. So hiring somebody like that um, is helpful from my, my perspective because they bring in the, the advantages and the things that they've learned other places. Um, our construction manager was a, was a, a really good hire, um, Again, same thing. Somebody who can, I've been in construction, been in and around construction. It's not the same as, as having a construction management degree and knowing more the ins and outs than even I do, right? Because I don't, I'm not on site building things. So um, project manager was also a key, key role that I've hired. Um, so my, one of my SVPs is, came from a background of city um, employment. He'd been a economics and planning manager for a city down in Arizona and uh, bringing him in was a huge help uh, because he understood how these projects are supposed to go from the city perspective right and so helping us 
to be in, uh, kind of attuned to their processes because we have a way that we can say, oh, well, it should go this way. Well, how we think it should go isn't necessarily how the city thinks it should go and make sure that all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. And so uh, I would say those are all key roles for me. So controller, construction manager, and, and kind of project managers that we've had are an SVP uh, for me. So tell me what you've, what you've learned from compensating and incentivizing you know, key employees, especially in an investments, you know, management business. Have you stuck primarily to salaries or you let them in on the carry or is it sizable? You know, if, if, if you're comfortable. So we, we do bonuses and I would say sizable is, is right. Um, but partly because I am more of the type of person I come from a background where I'd rather have people have large incentives than, um, you know, depending on the role. Right, it might be a few thousand dollars for some roles, but it might be fifty thousand dollars for another role. Right, mm -hmm. um, and that can very much depend on the value that they create within your business and and the um, taking energy or time, energy, and effort off of my plate that I have to expend. Right, if I have to spend time on something, um, but I can hand it off, and somebody else can spend even twice as much or three times as much as time as I did or to do it better than I was doing it because I didn't have enough time and because they, it, it, that really, that task required more time. Mm -hmm. For me, that's um, hugely important to be able to get projects and tasks the time they need. And sometimes as managers or uh, as entrepreneurs, you end up shortcutting things that need more time spent on them because we don't have the time, we don't have the money to hire somebody else to do it. But finding a way to do that is is pretty important because otherwise you're shortcutting the things that may end up making you the most money or um, that may prevent you from getting in the most trouble, right? Mm -hmm. you know, especially if you're talking about funds, shortcutting compliance is not a good idea, right? You're going to get yourself in more trouble. So understanding what you're getting yourself into is, is pretty key. Um, answer your question yeah no that's great that's that yeah that's great you know as you bring up compliance it's typically uh something that it, it's a it's the big monster in the closet you mm -hmm. know that people don't want to address or or you know take on you know how have you navigated your real estate business from an, a compliance lens have you outsourced that to a third-party compliance officer do you have your legal counsel that's guided you there? Do you have a CCO? Like, what does that look like? So one of my mentors early on um, was a guy who went to Yale Law. He's practiced law mergers and acquisitions, so he's in securities. Yeah. And then he and his brother did business and sold it, and he retired when he was 42, which was about 20-some-odd years ago, 22, 23. And, uh, and since then, he's been in real estate. Oh, okay. And so um, we met a, about a decade ago. Um, as I was starting to take on more capital and things like that. And he's invested at times over $15 million with me. Some points in the last 10 years, he's had less, he's had $0 with me, just depending on whether things have been paid off or kind of where we're at. And because of his background in securities, one of the things I've learned from him, and he's a great mentor to have because he's in real estate. And mm -hmm. a lot of people that are in real estate, and I don't know how many of the people in your audience are in real estate, but a lot of times people think, oh, I'm in real estate, I'm not in securities. And the general rule is that in most cases you are in securities if you're in real estate and many people don't recognize. If you're taking money from somebody and they're expecting a return, there's more qualifications than that. But 
if somebody wants to get upset and you're taking their money and you're they're getting a return, you're going to be lumped in with the security at some point. Yeah. Even if they took some active role at some point in, you know, selecting the property and there, I know guys that'll do that and they'll, you know, kind of as a fluff, send out an email. Hey, what do you think? Okay. They, I, they gave me their feedback. They're actively involved. It's not the same thing right? Yeah. as the day in, day out. The guy's got a job doing something totally different and you're trying to claim he's actively involved in your investment. And, and it's, it's generally not the case. They, most guys I know in real estate think they're, that think they're not securities. They are. But one of the things my mentors told me is, is disclose, 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 right? Just tell everything, right? And, yeah. and again, this is where you get people who are, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, I don't like this or I don't like that. And you say, okay, this isn't your investment, yeah, right? And that's fine. Um, the tricky part is, you know, guys get into investments where people disclose less and then things don't work out the way they want that other, you know, and then they end up getting sued or whatever. Right. And, and, or, you know, investors lose money and I didn't know, and it's just easier and better to disclose and help people feel comfortable with the fact that this is an investment. It's doesn't always go the way we want it to go. We're going to do our very best. And ultimately when people invest with you, they're investing with the operator, right? The person yeah. in charge and the paperwork's there as a backup, but you know, I found in a lot of ways it really protects the operator oh, more totally. than it protects the investor but you know it's there to protect both parties it is but i find a lot of times it yeah plays to your plays to your benefit yeah. uh so tell me a little bit you know as if you did dig a little deeper there how, how are you guys structured do you have an ria uh or we don't okay we, we work with uh, a lot of different groups that uh, honestly our biggest lead source is current clients we get every week we'll get I don't know, five to 10 people who say, Hey, my friend so-and-so is interesting, interested in investing. And they've been investing. The current person has been investing with us for one to five years or whatever. We get mm -hmm. a lot of investment. And the, a lot of that is because we're just constantly trying to update people. Like we had a grand opening at one of our, our um, sites in Colorado this last week. So we sent that out to our investors and a bunch of people came and one guy brought his brother and his and his another guy brought somebody else and a friend and and so those kinds of things we had about 200 members of the public there to look at the project it was you know, that's one of our few that is is for sale to owners and so we had a lot of agents and, and builders and people like that come in to look at the project so so that's been a great uh you know source for new investor capital coming mm -hmm. in yeah so along that same thread you know what that's probably you know, one of the hardest parts for emerging managers yeah. and new fund managers is actually raising the money. Uh, you know, what is, what are either tips or tricks or strategies that you've used or approaches that have been, you know, helpful that, you know, maybe aren't the obvious ones. Again, my mentor had kind of, for years I did kind of like an accrual basis on our projects. Like, mm -hmm. Hey, when, when it sells, we'll do this. One of the things that I learned over time is working with institutional groups, they always build in a, like an interest reserve where they, Hey, we're going to lend you a million, but on paper, it's going to look like 1.2 or whatever it is. And that extra 200,000 we're putting in a bank and you're going to pay us our interest every month from that extra money. Um, the point of me sharing that is that, um, one of the things that we've done sometimes is either with that or with other assets as they sell, just paying people every month makes a big difference hmm. because every single month they get a deposit and they 
think about us. And so when they're thinking about their friend who's talking about investments or what to invest their money in, they think of us. So one of our biggest sources of, of referrals is, is, is our current customers, but it's partly because we're always on their mind. We send them money every single month. And again, it's, it's for us, it, we treat it like debt. Yeah. Just like a, any other bank or any investment fund that would that invest in us, they expect a payment every month. And there's very few of those types of groups that will accrue it. But a lot of times when people, I shouldn't say a lot, frequently when I hear about it, people said, oh, yeah, we're, my investors are going to get paid in five years from now. So between yeah. now and five years from now, they don't think, they don't think about them. That's really interesting. So, and it doesn't work for everything. It works for me because I'm a real estate guy and, and it's kind of an industry standard anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for me to say to somebody, hey, we're going to return money. Now, if you're investing in a fund that's in, investing in you know, a tech company that's not making yeah. money, doesn't really make sense. Right. But it works for us because we're in real estate. Have you had a month where you haven't been able to pay that monthly fee? No, because we we do what I was saying. You know, oh, we're having you the, the, the interest reserve, yeah. and we'll also have we'll, we've got you know that community I mentioned a minute ago. As we sell the assets in there, we'll have you know millions of dollars that comes back that we can use to pay investor uh, interest. So um, that's one of the handy things. But if we weren't going to be able to, one of the things I would say is you just got to be upfront about it and You're say we're challenged in this way because of this. And so we're not, we aren't able to pay this money. Because your docs don't guarantee in any way, shape, or form. No. Uh, which they shouldn't. Um, no. But, you know, it's just the expectation that you'd kick off a, you know, a, a monthly distribution. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yep. And we do it. Yeah. So. How have you now, uh, have you ever had any investors that have had liquidity issues and need to get out early? Uh, have you, you know, what do you, what's your experience in dealing with the secondaries market? Uh, you know, what, what would you have to say there? So, yeah, that's something that happens. Um, it's happened a number of times over the years. And actually, when we when we were writing this most recent fund documents, we were looking at some sort of language in the document that would allow people to get out if they needed it. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, we've we've been fortunate. We've because we have investors that are constantly coming to us we'd probably operate different than others again where we'll just either we'll use our own capital and pay them out or somebody else will come in um when we were originally writing it we were writing it to the thought that there would be some sort of penalty but just in the end decided not to put a penalty in for it that's just our style Interesting. i mean there's again there's no there's no requirement for us to pay people out early um you it don't happens. charge a massive slap on the wrist fee if somebody no. needs to withdraw. Wow, that's really. That's but cool. we also don't guarantee it. So if they come yeah. in and say, and, and massive, I've never had anybody who said, you know, I need five million dollars out tomorrow. Yeah. Um. I think a couple months ago we had somebody who's like, I decided to buy a house, and I need five hundred thousand dollars at the end of June. Yeah. Right. So we got them five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. But that doesn't generally happen. It's un, unusual. Well, as we wrap up, uh, you know, a couple of, of last questions here. Uh, you know, what, what advice would you have to either emerging managers or people that are five or 10 years behind you that are just getting going or, you know, along in their journey? You know, what, what, what did you wish you knew when you were first starting out? 
I don't think anybody thinks it's easy, but really when you ask them, if you said, hey, this is, if, if, is this easy? Most people are going to say, no, it's not easy. But in their mind, they have some idea that it's going to be easier than it really is, right? They think, oh, I'm going to be able to raise the money or I'm going to, you know, people are just going to fall in love with what I'm doing, right? Because what I'm doing is so great. And what my my recommendation would be is is not to change that necessarily. Like, I want you to be passionate about what you're doing, but be patient and be patient with yourself and other people. Um, try to be as realistic as possible when you, when you go into it and say, and, but, but what if they don't, right? Yeah. If they, if I can't sell people on, on my ability or the, the vision or um, how great this is going to be, what happens then and have a good path laid out for achieving your passion, even if you're not able to do it, but partly because when people see that that's there, they go, oh, okay, they don't need my money. I'll invest with them. That's what I found a lot of the time. Um, when you don't need the money, it tends to come more readily. And even if it's a an air an air of I don't need the money, even if you do, you're like I need yeah. this money, right? Desperation doesn't bring people. And so being patient, being um, forth forthright with what everything that you're planning on doing and how you're planning on doing it um, is helpful. And you'll learn to be able to explain that to people better, people better as you get involved in sharing it more and more. But um, it takes time. Yeah. There's no shortcut. You know, some people naturally have a, an ability to raise money more than others uh, because of their personality or their passion or whatever it is. But um, I'd say stick with it. If that's Especially if that's not you, stick with it because it just takes some time. Yeah. What are some what are some habits that you feel like have attributed to your success uh, and or the success of your firm? Um, I mentioned before this a little bit, but just ha- and kind of even just now, the having a plan for an exit or if things don't go your way, like the way that you want them to go, because they very rarely do in real estate in probably in, in almost any business as an entrepreneur they could say most things don't go the way you want them to go um, but just having a, a plan you can kind of stick to knowing that it's going to pivot but having something that's more solid because I, I meet a lot of guys who are I'd say more whimsical maybe a polite way of saying it but they don't always have a clear line of and, and clarity about where they're going or what they're doing to get there yeah so more, more more of a methodical approach. Yeah. And even if that's not your personality, sitting down with somebody who can help you write it down on paper, say, here's what I want to achieve, and then poke some holes in it. Yeah. Because that'll help also if you're going to raise money because you're going to meet people with money and they're going to want to know what, where are the holes in this and what are you doing to make sure that we don't fall through one of those holes, right? Yep. So. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what are, on the flip side, you know, what are maybe some either investment or business pet peeves, uh, you know, that just kind of agitate you. I don't know, agitate's the right word for me, but I'm, I'm pretty pretty easygoing. But I would definitely say things that are areas of, of improvement for my staff and, and myself probably as well, but just communi- communicating clearly in an email, uh, is particularly in writing, because one of the things we had early on was one of my, my team members I brought on a, a eight or nine years ago um, comes from kind of a, his SWAT, formerly SWAT, but, you know, kind of that more militaristic um, kind of 
but if it's not written, it's not true, right? So write everything down. Uh, it can't be hearsay or she said that or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say that and then acronyms are really dangerous and making an assumption that whoever you're communicating with understands things to the level that you understand them, right? So if I'm sending you an email and I say, hey, do this thing tomorrow at seven or do that thing we talked about or, or that or, you know, the, this, that, the other acronyms are hard. So just clarity of communication help. Um, and again, going back to investors, because I think that's and uh, raising money and you can't make assumptions that people know what you know. Yeah. Right. If they knew, if they knew what you knew, they may be doing exactly what you're doing. And my guess is that you're probably raising from people who don't know what you know. So just assume that they don't. They may be smart. It's not don't you don't you don't want to speak down to them, but um, they may they may be able to understand it, but just not understand it yet because of of their lack of exposure to it. So I'd say just make sure really clear communication. So. Love it. Rob, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your story. And uh, really appreciate your time. It's an awesome conversation. Appreciate you having me, Lincoln. Hey guys, thanks for listening. As you know, we don't run ads on this channel. So if you could really help me out, if this podcast has added any value to you or your business, please subscribe, rate, and review. I would appreciate that greatly. Thank you. All information shared are the sole thoughts and opinions of the author. Do not take any information as legal or financial advice. You should seek a certified accountant and a professional legal team before taking any further action. We are not selling or soliciting a security in any way, shape, or form. This content is for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as financial or legal advice. Clients of Fund Launch or Black Card Capital Partners may maintain positions and securities discussed on this podcast.